All right, we are in uh, various texts this morning, so your best bet's probably going to be simply to follow along with me as I read these in, in just a second. Uh, they're printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, today, as we mentioned, does mark the beginning of Holy Week, uh, which is uh, a pretty important week for our followers of, of Jesus Christ because uh, this is the week in which we remember the, the last days, as it were, on this earth of, of Jesus, the Last Supper. <laughs> Uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection. These are the historical events on, on which our faith is based. If these didn't happen, then our faith is actually in vain. These are the uh, events that form the basis of the message that we preach. They form the, the, the basis of, of the gospel. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, it's not in your bulletin, but for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, Jesus died for our sins. He's, he stood in our place and received the condemnation for our sin that we justly deserve so that we would not be condemned. And now just as he rose from the dead, which we will celebrate next Sunday, we too, though we die, yet we will rise again as well. So this morning... Uh, as we are actually wrapping up a, a long series we've been in on sanctification, how we grow as believers, I want to try to make the case this morning that this story that we are remembering, especially this week about Jesus, that, that hearing this story and seeing this Jesus Christ is actually at the very core of how we change and how we become like Christ. Uh, so I'll read here three texts. Uh, from 1 John chapter 3, from John 17, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is God's word. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, help us as we um, give attention to your word this morning. These are not simply uh, men's words, but, but these are actually your words. And so I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear, uh, give us hearts to embrace uh, what your word says. Would you help us to see Jesus and in seeing him uh, be moved to love him and to worship him? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So the three things we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about worship, uh, we're going to talk about old habits, and we're going to talk about seeing. And I need to thank Matt Patrick because the conversation with him drove me back to a book by uh, James K.A. Smith, which is going to form a lot of the, the basis for some of the things I'm saying this morning. Uh, but first of all, worship. Worship. And, and here's what I want to say about worship. We become like what we worship. We become like the things that we worship. Uh, in his book, The Looking Glass, Through the Looking Glass, Chris Lungard tells the story of a guy named Lex who he was in high school with. Uh, Lex was, you know, one of these all-American kind of guys. Uh, he was the greatest athlete. He was the best looking. 
Uh, he was funny. All the guys admired him. All the, the girls wanted to go out with him. Uh, he, even parents liked him. He was respectful. He was humble. He was just kind of an all-around good guy. And in the sixth game of his freshman year, though, he was, he was a football player. He, he broke his collarbone, and he was out for the year. And so Lex would go to the gym every afternoon just to watch basketball practice. And Chris happened to be in the gym at the same time, working on the shot put. And he would come down and sit with Lex after practice and just, I mean, after he was finished, and just watch basketball practice. And they became friends. Lex, the cool guy, invited Chris, who wasn't so cool, into his life. And they hung out. And and Chris said the pinnacle was when Lex invited him to go with him to the Doobie Brothers concert. He's like, I I knew I I was in at that moment. But this is what he writes about their friendship. He says, as the friendship ripened, I noticed that something was happening to me. My laugh changed. My smile started to draw up slightly to one side. Rather, I thought the way Lex's smile drew to one side. I started using words I heard him use. Even the way I sat changed. It was as if I was auditioning to be Lex's stunt double. Without the least conscious effort, I was doing my best impression of Lex. You could say that I was being molded into his image. Uh, Have you ever experienced anything like that? Susan says about me that when I'm talking on the phone, I take on the accent and the vocal patterns of whoever it is that I'm talking to. All right, so you can look for this now if you're talking to me. Um, and, that, and that when I go home to, to Lower Alabama, I talk even more like I'm from Lower Alabama than I do now, if, if you can imagine that. Um, but but you, you, may have, you may have found yourself doing this with a good friend. You know, you, you just start talking like them. You start even acting like them. Why is that? Why do we do that? Well, it's actually because we're wired that way, I think. We, we become like the people and the things that we admire. Um, and, and this takes place on the level of ordinary loves, ordinary you know, people that we admire. Much more so, it takes place on the level of ultimate loves and the things that we worship. Uh, we saw that, I, I think, in our confession of sin this morning from Psalm 115. Uh, listen to verse 8 again, speaking of idols Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Now the context of that psalm, the writer is talking about literal idols made of silver and made of gold. Uh, And he tells us they have mouths and eyes and ears, and yet they don't speak and they don't see and they can't hear. And those who worship them will actually become like them. Now, the worshipers don't literally become deaf and and blind uh, and mute. But spiritually, they become lifeless. Spiritually, they become blind and deaf and mute. They become like their idols. Now, we don't worship physical idols here, but we do have our idols Uh, Things that we admire more than we should. Things that we gaze upon. Things that we worship. And these idols in our lives shape us. Uh, If if we worship money, we become greedy and stingy. And we treat other people as creditors or debtors or customers, but often not as 
human beings. Uh, if we worship beauty, we become vain. If we worship sex, we become self-centered and we treat others as sex objects. If we worship power, we become scheming and heartless and we treat other people as competitors or pawns. We're shaped by the things that we worship. But, but here's the thing. Even though we don't necessarily set out to worship these things, like I don't know that we often consciously make the decision to worship some of the things that, that I just mentioned, we still find ourselves worshiping. Uh, David Foster Wallace said that these forms of worship are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship we just gradually slip into day after day. Well, why do we slip into the pattern of worshiping these idols? Well, um, James Smith argues that we're being shaped by the liturgies of our culture, which lead us into default patterns of worship. Now, when I say liturgy, what do you think about? We think about the liturgy of a worship service, right? The, the things we go through in a, in a worship service. But James Smith defines it this way. He says, liturgy is shorthand term for rituals that are loaded with an ultimate story about who we are and what we're here for. All right, let me, let me read that again. Liturgy is shorthand for, is a shorthand term for rituals that are loaded with an ultimate story about who we are and what we're here for. And so what that means is our culture is constantly telling us stories about who we are, about what we're here for, about where we're headed, about what the good life really would be. And we swim in these stories like a fish swims in water, uh, so much so that we're not even aware that we're swimming in these stories. David Foster Wallace tells the story of, of two fish, younger fish swimming, and they meet an older fish, and the older fish says... Good morning, boys. How's the water? And they keep swimming. And after a little while, they stop. And one of them looks at the other and he goes, what's water? All right. Because they, they just swim in it. They're not aware of it. We're like that with a lot of our cultural stories and, and the liturgies involved in those stories. They shape our hearts. They form our worship. But we're not even really aware of it. Um, how have we, for instance, to give you an example... How have we gotten to the place where we worship stuff? That we're such materialists. I, I, I constantly am I'm thinking, you know, we look back on past generations and can't believe their racism. I think people are going to look back at us and say, I can't believe their materialism. How do, have we gotten to that place? Well, we've become consumers. Well, how have we become such consumers or consumerists? Uh, James Smith writes this. He says, it's not because someone comes along and offers an argument for why stuff will make me happy. I don't think my way into consumerism. Rather, I'm covertly conscripted into a way of life because I have been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. My loves have been automated by rituals I didn't even realize were liturgies. Liturgies bend the needles of our hearts but when such liturgies are disordered, aimed at rival kingdoms, they are pointing us away from our magnetic north in Christ. Our loves and longings are steered wrong, not because we've been hoodwinked by bad ideas, but because we've been immersed in deformative liturgies and haven't realized it. As a result, we absorb a very different story about the purpose of being human and the norms for flourishing. 
we start to live toward a rival understanding of the good life. And he, he says he realized that his son was actually starting to understand what he talked about. When his son wanted to go to the mall, and he said, Dad, will you take me to the temple? Because he saw the, the religious connotations that the mall really has. And I guess you say now, I wish you'd update his illustration, like that maybe Amazon has uh, in our culture. And, and we can say the same thing about our football stadiums on Sundays in the fall, right? Those are worship services, and there, there are liturgies involved in that that shape who we are as, as fans. But, but listen to how he says the, the mall's version of the kingdom, how consumerism shapes us. He says, one, it feeds the idea that I am broken, therefore I shop. Like, like what, are, what are all the ads and, and the well-dressed people in those ads and the nice cars that they're driving in those ads and how wonderful everything looks at the mall communicating? It's communicating, this is success, this is pleasure, this is fulfillment. When, when you have this, you'll have the good life. And what we realize as we're watching all that is, well, that's, that's not who I am. But I could have all that. If, if I had that barbecue grill, if I had that van with a drop-down DVD player, you know, if I had that dress, if I had what, it, then if I had that, that would fix what is broken with me. He says we also do these rituals with others. That consumer culture holds up these ideals of what the good life is, and we measure ourselves by them, but we also measure other people by them as well. We assess what other people are wearing and how fashionable they look and what they drive, and we start keeping score. And sometimes we win, and sometimes we lose. But in that, we, we turn human relationships actually into a competition with other people. Uh, we objectify others, and we objectify ourselves. And then thirdly, he says, I shop and shop and shop, therefore I am. That we begin to, to buy into this vision that goods and services will save us, will transform us, if we actually have the right ones in enough quantity. But, like, we know, right, the toy always gets old. The, 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 the shirt always goes out of style, and so we have to go back to the temple, and we buy something else. And in that process, we become consumerist. We become worshipers of consumer goods and services. We become what we worship. Uh, just kind of as an aside, like we do this with church too. Like when we're looking for a church, what do we call it? Church shopping, right? And we begin to see the church is simply a place where I go to get my religious goods and my religious feel instead of a place where I love other people and worship God and serve them and serve others. Worship. We become what we worship. Secondly, habits. Um, here's how the gospel comes into the midst of all this. So we, we, we've got our idols, we've got our cultural liturgies, our cultural stories that we're living by, and the gospel comes in and it gives us a better story to live by. But the gospel comes in and it points us to a better savior. It points us to a better object of worship in Jesus Christ. Uh, one of my, and you've heard this illustration before, but one of my favorite illustrations of this, uh, during World War II, Ernest Gordon was a, a British POW uh, in a Japanese pr uh, prison camp. 
uh, where the, the prisoners were actually forced to build what became known as the Railroad of Death to get the Japanese troops to the front lines to fight. And on one occasion near the end of the day, they counted up all the tools and one of the shovels was missing. And so the prison guard just started, he just went ballistic and he started yelling at them, one of you stole the shovel, you need to give this shovel back right now. And nobody would step forward and he got madder and madder and finally he cocked his rifle and pointed it at them. He said, I'll die, you're all going to die. And finally somebody stepped forward and said, I did it. And the prison guard beat the man to death. The, his fellow soldiers carried the body off, and as they were doing that, the tools were recounted, and it was found that there wasn't a shovel missing at all. And this man that stepped forward knew that he hadn't taken any shovel. He knew that there wasn't a shovel missing, but he had laid down his life for the rest of his, his, his brothers in arms there. Can, can you imagine how they felt about him? Can, can you imagine how they recounted that story and how that story shaped who they were? You know, the, the gospel is about Jesus doing that. The gospel is about Jesus who never sinned and knew that he never sinned, taking responsibility for our sin, receiving the punishment that we justly deserve, standing in our place so that our condemnation will be taken away. That's a story that, that many of you, I'm sure, maybe all of us have embraced. Like we've, we've taken hold of that story and we believe that story. Our, our eyes were open, our, our, our hearts were enlightened so, we, so that we could see the beauty of the gospel. So that we could see the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. And we fell before him and received him as Savior and we worship him. And seeing Jesus... And hearing that story begins to change us. But it doesn't happen overnight, right? We're not just instantly saints. Uh, This story begins to change us, but it doesn't happen overnight. Why doesn't it happen overnight? There's lots of different ways we've gotten at this over the course of this series. But one reason is that we've been worshiping other gods for a long time. We've been living in cultural liturgies like the liturgy of the shopping mall. And there are ruts that have been worn in our lives by those stories that we naturally follow. We've been trained to worship sex and money and power and pleasure. We've embraced the the liturgies of consumerism. We've been trained to think that buying the next thing will give us the beautiful lives that always seem like they've been just out of reach. You know, the short way to put it is is we've got bad worship habits. We've got bad worship habits. So even though now we've heard this Jesus story and we're excited about this Jesus story and we've underlined John 3.16 and highlighted in four different colors in our Bibles, we find ourselves unknowingly even at times, walking in those paths, in those old patterns of worship. Because that's, that's who we were for so long. Uh, S- Smith illustrates this in his book. He, he, he talks about 
his wife constantly being on him about his eating habits and how he needed to eat healthily and sustainably and ethically and locally and, and in ways that contribute to, to human flourishing. And, and I, when I tell this story, I always like to say, we at Grace embrace you no matter what your eating habits are. Uh, whether you shop at Aldi's or Costco or Sam's Club or whether you are growing uh, chickens hydroponically in your attic. Um, like that's, it's, it's all fine. Or if you drink elderberry milk, that, you know, that, that's great. Go. But, but he, was, he was being convicted, or his wife was convicted, this is the way he ought to be eating. And she just wasn't convincing him. So he starts reading Wendell Berry and Michael Pollan. Is that how you pronounce his name? Good, I got one right. It's Michael Pollan, and they begin to change his mind about how he ought to eat. Uh, but then he says a funny thing happened. He'd been converted, but he discovered a big gap between his thoughts and what he was actually still doing. And so he said one day he's reading Wendell Berry's book called Bring It to the Table. And Wendell Berry, if you don't know, is like, Small farmer, anti-industry, um, grows tobacco, um, poet, doesn't own a computer, hates industrialized food. Okay, This is Wendell Berry. I don't love Wendell Berry. Um, but he's, he's, he's got this book by Wendell Berry, and he's like underlining it and writing amen in the margin. And then he says this, an ugly irony struck me. I was reading Wendell Berry in the food court at Costco. There are so many things wrong with that sentence that I don't even know where to begin. Costco, for those who may not know, is a retail chain specializing in big box, bulk size, mass-produced food, and other goods. Indeed, the food court at Costco might be a kind of shorthand for what Wendell Berry imagines when he pictures the sixth circle of hell. But here I was, munching on one of those Costco foot-long hot dogs, almost certainly not from Happy Pigs while nodding in agreement with Wendell Berry. And so he says, like, there's this gap between what I think I want and then what I actually want, which is hot dogs from Costco. Like, I'm like, yeah, no, I should, mm, this is really good, okay? Um, he said, I believed Michael Pollan, but I wanted a Big Mac. And then he says, you just can't think your way to new hungers, Wendell Berry changed my mind, but he couldn't change my habits. Unlearning those habits would take counterformative practices, different rhythms and routines that would retrain my hunger. My hungers would have to be retrained so that I would want to eat differently. Um, my birthday was this past week, and if you didn't send me a text or card, the elders would be contacting you. Um, just kidding. But, but, but leading up to my birthday, I had been eating a lot better. So then we were trying to decide where to go out to eat for my birthday, and I love to go to the Flounder for my birthday, which if you don't know, the Flounder is a, a fish camp. And you go to the Flounder, and, you, and I get the seafood platter fried. It's just like anything they can find in the ocean, they fry it, right? And then they give you the vegetable of slaw. That's, that's your one vegetable. And I was like, man, I kind of want to, but, but something had changed. Like, I don't, Susan, I don't know if I want that much fried food. And they don't have any vegetables there. But finally, I was like, no, it's my birthday. All right, we're, we're, we're going to the flounder. So we went to the flounder. I got the seafood platter. 
came back and ate half a pound cake that Susan had made for me. And then the next day, my men's Bible study group, we had fried chicken for lunch, and they bought me pound cake too. And you just felt how easily, like suddenly you're like walking around the house like grabbing the potato chips again. Because like all those old habits that had been grooved into you were coming back because you indulged just a little bit. Like you guys, we know this with the various sins we struggle with, right? We have these deeply ingrained habits, these deeply ingrained wants, uh, sometimes that, that we're not even aware of, that our culture feeds so that we, we want to be less consumeristic. We want to give more money away. Like we leave here thinking that, but then in an hour and a half, you find yourself in the parking lot of Costco, maybe listening to this sermon again on your iPod after you've just bought everything in the store. Like there's, like there's what we think we want, and then it doesn't line up often with our actual practices that have become so ingrained in us. So there's what we worship that shapes who we are. There are habits and our liturgical practices. And then finally, seeing Jesus. Uh, we need new habits that help us to see Jesus. The, the second Corinthians passage that, that we read this morning says that we are changed by degree as we see the glory of Jesus. The first John passage says that when we get to heaven, we will be like him. Why will we be like him? Because we will see him as he is. Now think about that. That what changes us on that day is that we finally see Jesus as he really is. That for the first time with clear eyes and full hearts, with, 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 the, with the blinders of sin removed from our eyes, we see Jesus for who he is and all his beauty and all his glory. And that changes everything that leads us to worship. And in worshiping him, we become like him because we, come like, we become like the things that we worship. And if that's the case, if what ultimately changes me is seeing Jesus and worshiping Jesus, if that's the case, then the way to begin to change now is to see him more clearly now. To get a clearer vision of who Jesus is now. The, the better I see him, the more his story gets into me, the more like him I will be. So the question then is, how do I see him now? How do I see him now? You know, we, we have a, a tendency, we want things instant, we want things big, we want things to happen dramatically, we want something new and amazing. But I'd argue that we're enabled to see Jesus and hear the gospel in very ordinary ways. Very ordinary ways. There's, a, there's an old joke about a very devout Christian who was stuck during a flood. And I know you've, you've heard this in one form or the other. And he's convinced that God is going to save him. And so the waters are not very deep. And somebody comes by in a canoe and says, let me get you out of here. And he says, no, God is going to save me. Goes, All right, man. And he keeps going. And then the waters get a little bit deeper. And somebody comes by in a motorboat and says, let me get you out of here. And he says, no, 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 God is going 
to save me. He's like, oh, whatever, dude. And, and so he keeps going. So now the water is up to the top of the house and the man is on the roof and somebody comes by in a helicopter. And he says, no, no, it's okay. God is going to save me. And so finally the man drowns and he goes to heaven and he says to God, I thought you were going to save me. And God says, I sent you a canoe and a boat and a helicopter. What more did you want me to send? Right? Like it, it was right there in front of you. The, the way we see Jesus, the way our hungers begin to be changed is by embracing new liturgies, countercultural liturgies even. Not dramatic, not extraordinary, but simple and ordinary. What are they? What are the canoes and the boats and the helicopters that God sends for us? Well, one is, is this. It's this. It's, it's the covenant community of God's people. It's, it's the church. It's people who will set an example for us. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. And so we need believers who will set an example for us. Uh, I remember you know, many different pastors, ministers who God has, has used in my life. I remember seeing one vacuuming the, the fellowship hall after everybody had left and he was still in there serving. I remember another one in the way I would see him praying in the corner of his office every morning. Another one, he told me, hey, I'm praying for you. I got a, I've got a stack of index cards and I'm, I'm praying for you every day. Another one, he was very honest with me about the, the sins that he struggled with. We, we need examples. We need more mature believers in our lives. We also need believers who will hold us accountable and who will speak into our lives and who are not afraid to call us out when we need to be called out, but know how to encourage us when we need to be encouraged. So we need, we need people. We need this body. Uh, second thing we need, though, to, to see Jesus, we need to make use of the means of grace. The means of grace are where we meet with Jesus. I was listening to the story this week of, of Madden football, right? Those are video game people. Madden football started like late 80s, early 90s. I, had, I remember playing Madden 93 when I was in college with all my friends, and, it, and it's still a thing. It's a billion-dollar video game. Uh, John Madden had been a football coach for the Oakland Raiders and retired and was a television announcer for years. And he was just a great communicator and teacher. And so the people with electronic arts somehow got hooked up with John Madden, and he was going to help them figure out how to to you know, get the football angle of this video game they were making. But the problem was, John Madden, he, 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 was, he could be hard to get up with, but there was one way you could get up with him, because he didn't like to fly. And he didn't have a cell phone, and so the way he would get from one football game to the next, he's an NFL announcer, was he would take the train. Always take the train. So you imagine you do the Giants game one Sunday and then you're doing like the, the Raiders the next Sunday in California. It takes 72 hours to get across the country on a train. He would always take the train. So if you wanted to spend some time with John Madden, go get on the train with him. All right? There was nothing else to do but sit there and talk to him. And so the means of grace, they're how we get on the train with Jesus. They're how we sit with Jesus. Uh, they're how we commune with Jesus. Um, these, are, these are practices, let's be honest, that, that often 
you know, we don't feel like doing these. They're not very exciting. It's, it's hard a lot of times to see immediate payback from them. But they're the practices Jesus gives us. Prayer. Uh, reading our Bibles. Baptism. The Lord's Supper. Singing. Fasting, which is really a form of prayer. It's these practices that slowly begin to change not just what we think we want, but what we really want. It doesn't happen all at once, but it happens over time, day after day after day after day. Because in these means of grace, we see Jesus. We hear his story again. We see his glory. We're reminded of how much he loves us. And y'all, that's what changes us. Over time, that is what changes us. And so I, I could, could never overstate how badly we all need to be here week in worship, week after week after week. How badly we need to hear the call to worship and be reminded, hey, this is actually what you're for, is to worship God. How badly we need to confess our sins and to hear the gospel again, that, that those sins are actually forgiven. How badly we need to think through the truths that we talk about in the confession of faith because some of those truths are actually what's going to get you through hard times when hard times come. How much we need to sing praise to God and to sing the gospel to one another. How much we need instruction in the word. How much we need to see again in the Lord's Supper that yes, you are so sinful that someone had to die for you, but you are so loved that Jesus willingly died for you, we see that every week in the Lord's Supper. How much we need to hear the benediction that God delights over you with singing. We need to hear that week after week after week. I, I can't overstate how badly we need that liturgy in our lives. And how much you need liturgies like that in your own daily personal life. How we daily need to confess sins and practice not just a quiet time, but a worship time. How badly we need to immerse ourselves in the scripture and praise God ourselves. You know, you, you all, we all have liturgies. Like you've got a liturgy you go through every morning. You, you may do the same thing every day. You've got a liturgy you do every night before you go to bed. It may be gazing at Instagram, gazing at Amazon, uh, gazing at Netflix, gazing at you know the websites gazing at your newspaper what if that liturgy involved daily actually gazing at Jesus like if, if, if he was what I was looking at every day if I made that a part of my life wouldn't that begin to change me over time I'll close with this. Uh, I just found out, those of you, I don't know when he quit doing this show, at least my age and, and older probably will appreciate that there's going to be a movie about Mr. Rogers this year. All right, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, and Francois Clemens, years ago, was asked, he was an African-American man, he was asked by Fred Rogers to play a policeman uh, on the Mr. Rogers show. And Clemens said, you know, I, I grew up in the ghetto. I didn't have a very positive view of police officers. They were the ones sicking dogs on us and turning water hoses on us. So I wasn't really sure I wanted to play 
a police officer. I had a, a hard time putting myself in that role, but he finally agreed to do that, and he played Officer Clemens for 25 years. Uh, and he said that there's one episode, one scene that is forever seared in his memory. It was this day, it was a hot day, and Mr. Rogers was sitting there with his shoes off in one of those plastic swimming pools with water, kind of cooling off. Uh, and he invited Officer Clemens over to, to sit beside him and to put his feet in the water with him. And he, he said this, the icon Fred Rogers not only was showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin as two friends, but as I was getting out of the tub, he was helping me dry my feet. And he said, Rogers wrapped up the program the same way he did every day. He hung up his sweater, and then he said, you make every day a special day just by being you, and I like you just the way you are. And Clement said this time, it was like he was looking right at him when he said that. And so he asked him later, he said, were you, were you talking to me when you said that? And Fred Rogers says, yes, I've been talking to you for years, but you heard me today. But you heard me today. Y'all, in the means of grace, Jesus doesn't say, I like you just the way you are. He doesn't actually say that. He says, I love you in spite of who you are. And I love you so much that I willingly gave up my life for you so that your sins could be forgiven, so that your guilt could be atoned for, so that your shame could be removed. And my intention for you you is to change you into the person you were always intended to be. I love you that much. Have you seen him looking at you and saying that? Have you heard him speaking those words, I love you, to you? You see that and you hear that through the means of grace. And if you make use of the means of grace, you will see Jesus And as you see Jesus, you will be led to worship Jesus and you will become like Jesus because you have seen him as he is and that can't help but change you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, would you help us to see that we are what we worship and would you help us to see just those cultural liturgies and patterns that shape us into worshipers and and how we're worshiping things we're not even aware of. And would you help us also to, to make use of these means of grace that you've given us uh, to create new good ruts in our lives, uh, that you've given us to shape us, that you've given us to help us see you and to hear the message of the gospel, that we are loved and forgiven because of what you've done. Help us to make use of these. Help us to see you. Help us to see you even now. We ask in your name. Amen.